The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the man who achieved resounding success by famously saying very little, Calvin Coolidge. His accidental presidency began with an unexpected middle-of-the-night swearing-in ceremony. By morning, this small government-minded politician was cutting the budget and reducing taxes. And when government action was called for, he stepped in when he had to, but controversially stepped out of the spotlight when private solutions existed. The ironically quiet presidency of the Roaring Twenties, Silent Cow, Calvin Coolidge, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We're excited to have as our guest expert on POTUS number 30, four-time best-selling author Amity Chalaise. She chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Foundation and serves as a presidential scholar at King's College. She's a contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Bloomberg, Forbes, and National Review. Amity has written a terrific biography on the life and presidency of Calvin Coolidge called Coolidge, the very man we want to discuss here today. Amity, thanks for taking the time to join us here on American POTUS. Glad to be here. Amity, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to talk with you again after far, far too long. Really appreciate you being part of American POTUS. Calvin Coolidge was born in Vermont, made his name as a lawyer and politician in Massachusetts, and after the presidency, returned to Vermont. What did being a New Englander contribute to his personality and to his politics? A great deal. Remember, when Coolidge's family went to their part of Vermont, they thought they were pioneers. Vermont was the West to them. And you think about the town he came from, Plymouth Notch, and the area who came out of there, people like the Wilders, as in Laura Ingalls Wilder. A lot of Americans started out in Vermont, moving away from, say, Boston, and then moved west again, or north and west, depending, right, to Wisconsin, the Great Plains, all the way to the other coast over time. So he came out of the pioneer impulse. His family came through the Boston area with the original pilgrims and settled in a kind of tough part of Vermont. They say they farm rocks there. Many of them <laughs> left to to go to the beautiful plains of the Midwest uh, to where um, once you irrigated a bit, farming was easier. He's very American in that way. If we ran into Calvin Coolidge on the street right now, what would that interaction be like? What would strike us most about him, about his personality? Well, of course, Silent Cal is known as Silent Cal for mm-hmm. a reason. Okay. Coolidge, who, who served in the 20s, what, could be pretty silent. He wasn't, I think he would strike us as a farmer. Uh, and again, I say that, that it, the farmers of the Midwest, well, they came from somewhere, and a lot of them came from New England. Uh, and they're they tend to be a little bit conservative with words. Mm-hmm. They don't swap over, as Coolidge would say. But he was also, um, by nature, an introvert. So in that, he'd be similar to President Obama. 
or uh, President John Kennedy, a person who you kind of watch him, you can watch him think. If you ask him a question, he doesn't always look you right back in the eye because he's asking himself the answer. <laughs> and you watch him think through the answer, then he'll return to you with the answer and look you in the eye then. But in between, he needs the privacy to think. Think that's one of those people. Interesting. So you open your book, your biography of Coolidge, by calling him the great refrainer. What did you mean by that, and why was that a positive rather than a negative approach to governing? Well, I'm sure on this show you'll have uh, many biographers and presidential scholars who will speak of the power of activity. For example, Theodore Roosevelt said, get action. Well, Coolidge was in the same party as Theodore Roosevelt, the Republican Party, yet they had very different approaches to government. Coolidge believed, uh, unlike most any president we can think of now, that doing less yields more. And we're just making a video about that at the Coolidge Foundation. He said it's better to kill a bad law than to pass a good one. Oh, that's very different. In fact, he wrote that in counsel to his father, who happened to be a state legislator in Montpelier, the capital of Vermont, when Coolidge um, was already well into his career in, in Massachusetts, a larger state. He advised his father, better kill a bad law than to pass a good one. He also said, give administration a chance to catch up with legislation. You don't know the value of a law until a few years after you've begun to, to implement it. So that's very different from political culture where we, we, we consider faster to be better. He said the opposite. Great. I will add by great refrainer, when someone is less active, we tend to think he's lazy, and certainly that's the cartoon of Coolidge. He took naps. You think of the cartoon of Reagan. He took naps. He must have been lazy. But Coolidge believed that inaction was important, and the reason I call him the great refrainer and not just the refrainer is sometimes doing nothing is harder than doing something. If, if Coolidge were to be, you know, we think of presidents in terms of sports anachronistically, I think of him as a windsurfer. Because you look at windsurfing and you say, wow, that looks easy, right? <laughs> Being Coolidge looks easy, but if you ever try to windsurf, you know what core strength it takes. It mm -hmm. took a lot of core strength for Coolidge to refrain from butting in. Let's turn to his pre-presidency where he did take very substantial action. Where he first made his name nationally in the Boston police strike of 1919 when he was governor. And he, if I remember correctly, fired the striking officers, reminiscent of, of Reagan's handling of the air traffic controllers many years later. Can you tell us a bit about that moment in Coolidge's career that led, it appears, directly to his nomination in the following year for the vice presidency? Yes, we're thinking here about a politician. Nobody makes it to the presidency, even through the vice presidency and a tragic death, the way Coolidge did, without being a skilled politician. Coolidge understood the importance of timing. You, you can't address every issue every day, but you address issues when they're ripe, mm -hmm. when the moment seems necessary, when the effect will be greatest. Generally speaking, Coolidge was then governor of Massachusetts in the Boston police strike of 1919. There were strikes all over the country. And consensus was building that public sector workers probably shouldn't strike because when you have a service strike in a city, chaos ensues, if not more, rioting as we have today. So in, but Coolidge was governor of Massachusetts, not mayor. By a quirk of Massachusetts law, the police reported through a chain of people to Coolidge, to the governor, not just to the mayor. 
and the policemen in Boston broke their contract, which said no striking. And they thought they would win because they thought they were good at timing. Across the nation, unions were growing, including public sector unions. Unions had supported the country royally in World War One. They kind of wanted a payback. They certainly deserved, um, in terms of compensation, a shift because the union membership of the, the Boston Police New Union were definitely underpaid. Their working conditions were bad. They had every case for improvement of compensation and conditions. Nonetheless, they were um, breaking their contract when they struck and lighting, looting, door windows gone did ensue. And Coolidge, uh, through his chain of command, did permit them to be fired. And then he backed up those who fired them below him. And he said there's no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. There's no right to strike against the public safety. And that that line resonated across the land because other cities were were confronting the same challenge. Mm -hmm. And the public sided with Coolidge. That is, they said uh, public servants just have a different obligation and they, they they shouldn't endanger us all. And th- this did inspire uh, Reagan much later with the air traffic controllers, which we can talk about. But the main thing is it was a bit brave of Coolidge to do that. So he he didn't lack guts. He loved the policemen. They loved him. Their whole dissertations, I kid not, written about how Coolidge did well with the Irish vote. The Irish were what the policemen were at the time in Boston, and many of them had served bravely in World War One. So... Here he is hurting his own voters, proximate to an election. He was supposed to, you know, running for re-election that year, 1919. But he felt the principle was important to save Boston, and he was aware, you, you can't say he wasn't, of the national audience that would watch this high-stakes decision he made. And he wrote his father, you know, I may not be re-elected because of this, but it was the right thing to do. So there you have the conviction as well. Very controversial move, very important change. Definitely, as he acknowledged, got him onto the national ticket because he was the law and order component of the Harding Coolidge Republican ticket of 1920. Before we get into POTUS number 30, taking over the White House, a quick note about you getting in touch with us here at American POTUS. We're always happy to see your comments or suggestions about this episode or any others. Simply visit AmericanPOTUS.com or send us a note on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And while you're there on your favorite social platform, we'd appreciate it if you spread the word about the podcast. So when he does enter the vice presidency, how did he get along with President Harding? And then after the death of Harding, how in the world did he deal with the scandals that Harding left behind? Well, vice president is a weird role. We know some famous comments about that role. Um, he, he was in charge of the Senate, president of the Senate, but the Senate wasn't very respectful of him, particularly not because an important leader in the Senate was Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, way senior to Coolidge. Mm-hmm. Henry Cabot Lodge, not so interested in Coolidge, kind of a snobby guy. It said that Henry Cabot Lodge said, um, I knew Coolidge when it was necessary to know him, i.e. and not before. Oh, that's rough. (laughs) Right, right. So remember, Coolidge sounds Anglo, but to the Boston people, Calvin Coolidge was a swamp Coolidge because he was from Vermont. He Hmm. wasn't from Boston. He wasn't a Lowell. So, so imagine the weight of the snobbery in Massachusetts. He was he represented Western Mass, 
Boston, not, not Boston. Harding kindly invited Coolidge to participate in cabinet meetings, which was then unusual. I, I think that was a bit of a purgatory for Coolidge because he really didn't know want to know everything about the cabinet because he smelled it was corrupt. Very interesting. I don't know how that would work today, but it... Uh appeared to work for him. I know during his administration, he accomplished quite a bit. Amanda, you, you devote a good deal of Coolidge to the president's partnership with the Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, and their approach to budgeting. They rationalized the budgeting process. They reduced expenditures. They retired the debt. They reduced taxes, all the while increasing government revenues. How in the world did they accomplish all those things at the same time? First of all, Coolidge understood the importance of political capital. He didn't want to squander any political capital through, say, scandals. So he devoted himself to cleaning up the presidency and, I mean, living by example, investigating Harding and so on without seeming venomous, you know, committing himself to policies that Harding had committed himself to prior, that is, consequent execution of what the GOP had committed, not much variation. So he was really um, quite skilled at managing a scandal situation. Two, um, he really did live by example. That is, he, he didn't think his wife should wear jodhpurs. That was too radical. She shouldn't. The Coolidge family should be above reproach. So he put this this on his family as well, which is sometimes hard, but he, he saved money at the White House. He fired one housekeeper and got another because she spent less. Really, right down to the detail, it sounds cruel, but what it did was made Americans respect the presidency again. Second, he believed in the principle of delegation. Mellon was a fabulous Treasury Secretary. He did serve three, three presidents, but it was also said three presidents served under Mellon, because Mellon was so skilled at finance, so eminent an American. Coolidge delegated to Mellon. He knew that Mellon knew more about taxation and finance than he did. So that's a kind of humility that a president has to have to get the best results for his administration. Mellon said, well, gee, um, markets are kind of depressed. They don't like the high capital gains rate. They're not transacting. Therefore, we're getting less revenue. And this isn't, he had the data to prove it. It's still there in the statistics of income. So have a look. Uh, the market was on what they called capital strikes. So Mellon said, we're going to make clear what the direction of taxation is in the United States. That is downward. We're going to fix the capital gains rate, which was, was unclear what that was, at a low rate, 12.5%, 13%. And we're, we're going to reduce uncertainty in the American market. And this program, which would sound controversial today, worked crazily well. That is, Americans saw that the government wasn't after too much of their money. International markets saw that too. Money poured toward America. Americans began investing again, and you saw the results in the unemployment data. Unemployment was low. People got raises, particularly skilled workers. And most important, there were many advances in the country that were a gift of the companies um, Americans worked for. Uh, particularly, three examples, um, people began to get Saturdays off because productivity was so good at companies, that was the first time people didn't work six days, so thank Calvin Coolidge for Saturday every time you enjoy it. People got radios, people got telephones, and people got, uh, I think the most important if you're concerned with true poverty, people got indoor plumbing because oh, yeah. we all know wherever we're listening that the number one thing that distinguishes 
being working poor from poverty is having indoor plumbing. Mm-hmm. That was the decade when indoor plumbing became the rule. And, the, you know, Coolidge didn't take the market or the economy for granted. He didn't, he understood what it could do to improve American life. And it, the, the entire thing happened. It's, it's such a pity that in secondary school now in the United States, uh, the, the 20s are often taught as a fake, sort of a champagne bubble in Gatsby's glass, when mm-hmm. truly the growth and progress of the 20s through the markets and less government, well, they, it, it, they were real. The, the, the roaring twenties did roar, and I hope our listeners will listen. Uh, will read your really great book, The Forgotten Man, all about the the Great Depression, and 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 on that same theme, when when that crisis hit, had Coolidge anticipated it in any way? He was out of office, and how did he respond to how Herbert Hoover responded to the crisis? Well, uh, Coolidge believed in what's sometimes called the Eleventh Commandment, which is never criticize another <laughs> member of your party yeah, via yeah. Reagan. But we can surmise. Herbert Hoover and his successor in Coolidge were in the same party, but they were extremely different guys. Mm-hmm. Hoover was action man. Coolidge was the great refrainer. Action man had a different attitude towards markets. Example, Hoover believed that a higher labor price was good. It was an early version of Keynesianism. Then if people have higher wages, they'll buy back the car and that will that they make, and that will stimulate the economy. He believed in demand-side stimulus, in a way Coolidge did not, probably. So Coolidge sort of strong-armed business into keeping wages high, which was a new policy for a president. People didn't even know a president could do that, and uh, uh, both personally through personal persuasion and also through laws, such as the Davis-Bacon Act. What does an employer do when he's losing profits and being told he has to keep wages high? He rehires more slowly, and he lays off more quickly, mm-hmm. right? Because it's just too expensive given what he has coming in in a downturn. So that that was very different to Coolidge. Also different to Coolidge was Hoover berated the stock market. Bad stock market. Your short sales are the problem. I don't think <laughs> Coolidge would have jumped in and, and tried to be, play teacher with the stock market. Remember, this is all before the creation of the Securities and Exchange Commission. The federal government was not in charge of the stock market. Mm-hmm. And um, Hoover generally pretended to be able to control everything. I will get a chicken in every pot. And then, of course, he couldn't. And so he was blamed. Coolidge never would have said that the government is responsible for the market. Coolidge certainly expected a downturn. The stock market had gone very high to 381 from 100. That personally made Coolidge nervous. But he knew fairly accurately that the federal government wasn't the key there. Um, The economy goes through cycles. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a big, you know, Coolidge had been through multiple crashes in his lifetime without any old Great Depression. What caused the Great Depression, and I argued this in, in my preceding book, uh, Forgotten Men, uh, with all the data that go with it, was that the government went crazy with intervention, first through Hoover and then through Franklin Roosevelt. Coolidge wasn't at fault just because something precedes something doesn't mean the first thing causes the second I do want to criticize, uh, mention one area, though, where where Coolidge's economic policy was counterproductive. It was the tariff. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was pro-tariff because the GOP was. So was Hoover. Hoover actually signed a new tariff, the infamous Smoot-Hawley tariff. But anyway, Coolidge would have gone along with that because he believed America needed to be 
protected. He believed in protecting business. Today, most of us uh, don't think that's productive. It, it, you know, interestingly, when you look at the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which is alleged to have caused the Great Depression, I, I don't buy that, but it, it did do damage, let's say. The, the most negative result of our tariff, pro-tariff policy, was that we hurt our friends, the Europeans, mm-hmm. and we caused them to despair of the democratic cause. They said, look, the Americans are saying we owe them money for World War One or the English, and yet they're imposing tariffs on our products. The only way we can pay our debts is if we can sell our automobiles. So this contributed to the rise of fascism in European countries. The duplicity, the hypocrisy of American pro-tariff policy, Coolidge included. Now, he's also taken criticism for his approach to the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 that uh, largely forgotten today, but is unparalleled until perhaps you get to Hurricane Katrina he appointed Hoover to lead a relief effort, but many said then he did not do enough. Where, where do you stand on this? What did he do in response to that crisis, and what guided his actions? Well, this, of course, is what President Bush 43 confronted when we had Katrina. As you said, do you go? How fast do you go? Well, who's in charge of floods? Governors? The Army Corps of Engineers? Is Washington in charge of floods? And you have a, a, a great or any natural disaster. Who's in charge of COVID? A governor? Governor Cuomo? Governor Noam? Or the president? Who, who's in charge of COVID, right? Federalism, our system, which does give much authority to the states, always looks bad in a crisis. And foreigners, some Americans now listen to the BBC all the time, don't get this. Because they think of America um, as led by a commander-in-chief at home and abroad. Well, a U.S. president is commander-in-chief in war, but he's not commander-in-chief domestically, right? Mm-hmm. So so this gap in understanding, all, you know, it's always, if you want to get a bad snapshot of a U.S. president, you have a crisis. Coolidge believed that the federal government should not manage the result of the disastrous Mississippi flood. It might admonish the Red Cross to go. It might, in the end, build some infrastructure somewhere. It might lead spiritually rescue efforts, but it it wouldn't be a great president for the U.S. to be the Washington U.S., the government, to be in charge of managing every disaster. Therefore, he chose not to go to Mississippi. Technically, he thought if he went to the flood, then he would be forced to sign law um, or his veto would be overridden that mandated future great spending by the government in Washington on infrastructure. And he was opposed to that. He wanted the states to shoulder the burden among themselves. So he didn't go. And it was kind of a biblical test because it was a terrible flood in the South. They said, one senator, Thaddeus Caraway, said, well, if Coolidge had seen a flood where he's from, he would have gone. He would have gone if, if he, you know, he, he doesn't. He doesn't really care about the South because he's not from there. That is, he he assailed Coolidge's character, mm-hmm. and then, as I say, it was sort of like um, providential retribution. My goodness, there was a flood where Coolidge was from the same year <laughs> in Vermont. So the question was, would Coolidge go to Vermont if he had not gone to the South? Coolidge did not go to Vermont on principle. Did he care about Vermont? Totally. He saw aerial pictures of his own village flooded. Mm. But he knew that a president must be above the nation. A president is not a congressman. He's he's certainly not a mayor. 
he's president of all Americans. And if he showed favoritism, he would be corrupt. Very different attitude. I think very admirable, very tough for the Coolidge family. But the Vermonters of the time understood, and there's a beautiful set of photos of Coolidge's visit after Vermont was all repaired a year later, when he gave a speech from the back of a train called Vermont is a state I love, hmm. talking about the incredible character of the Vermonter, people who would beggar themselves to help others at the time. So it was different times, but it doesn't mean that period was passe. I, I think Americans can draw strength from that record. Vermont did repair itself, and so did the South. You want to ask whether it's a good habit for the United States to expect the government to solve everything. Anyone who questions that might have a good look at Coolidge. So certainly a man of principle, and he had a very good record in terms of civil rights. Can you tell our listeners a bit about his civil rights actions, and why is he not lauded more today for his actions in that arena? Well, um, let me just say, first of all, he believed a better economy was good for civil rights. Mm -hmm. He understood that one reason lynching was occurring in the South was the poverty of the South, the failure of the farm, just general populist sorrow and disgruntlement and tragedy. The economy got better. The lynching went down under Coolidge. You look at the data, it's in the historical statistics of the United States, or the volumes you'll see it go down, or the, the volumes of Stanley Weaver got. So you believe when Americans are happier, they behave better and don't murder each other. He understood that. But he also backed anti-lynching law, that such law could not be passed. Congress wasn't for it. There was no way it could be passed, so he, he backed it, but he didn't get anywhere with it, particularly in the vice presidency. You see that. More importantly, he wanted to send a signal that he believed that African Americans are equal citizens, which President Wilson has not. He got a letter from a Republican saying, well, maybe an African American shouldn't run for office in the United States, and Coolidge wrote a bitter rebuttal saying, I'm amazed you even would say such a thing. Mm. African-Americans did their time in World War One. They are citizens as you and I, and they have every right to run for office, mm. i.e., and to vote, right? So he stood up for African-Americans. He also signed a law that all Native American citizens, which they were all up until then, very important. He was for, I would say, something closer to a colorblind America. Citizens should be respected. He gave a very moving speech at Howard University, the historically black university in Washington, and uh, approved an appropriation for their medical school, which, um, as we know, Coolidge was a very parsimonious president. So for him to approve an appropriation, uh, that was tough. And he did because he believed he wanted to show Americans that African-Americans would be great doctors if only they had a chance to go to medical school. So mm -hmm. this was his story, and it was related to his faith. I will mention one thing that's not known at all, and Kurt Schmoke, one of our trustees at the Coolidge Foundation, has spoken all about this, but I want to add one, one thing. Coolidge attended a church committed to integration in Washington. Not all churches in Washington were committed to integration. That church was First Church, a Congregationalist church. Which, whose very existence was posited on a commitment to racial integration, including membership in the church. First church was the church of Howard, who created Howard U. And at Coolidge's church, I don't have any evidence Coolidge attended, but you know the symbolic importance of this. The singer, the black singer, Marian Anderson, sang in the 20s. That's well before she sang at the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah. 
And that gives you a feel for the Coolidge's. They didn't talk about race too much, but they had a deep and faith-related commitment to the concept that all men are created equal. If all men are created equal, that is final, Coolidge said, in a wonderful speech on a, uh, honoring the, the anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. We'll get into Silent Cow's personal life in just a bit. But first, a quick reminder to send us a note and let us know what you think of this or any other episode. You can reach us at AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And while you're there, be sure to like or follow our page for upcoming features and announcements. Tell us about Grace Coolidge. How did she approach her role as First Lady, and what can you tell us about her background and their relationship? Grace Coolidge was, as far as I know, the first professional First Lady. Not only did she have a B.A., but also she had professional training as a teacher of the deaf. And she hosted Helen Keller at the White House. She was a beautiful woman. I, I think I would uh, get some anger if I, I said how beautiful. But let's just say <laughs> she was among the most beautiful first ladies. And Coolidge was quite jealous of her, protective, I mean, of her. Uh, in, there's a painting of her wearing a red dress, which he found risque, next to a beautiful white dog. And he said, did that dress really have to be red? <laughs> and the painter said, well, it sets off the white. He said, well, why don't you paint the dog red and she can wear white. <laughs> Isn't that the um, one hanging in the White a, House, I believe? I, I think it is. Yeah, yeah it moves yeah. around. I think it is. Yeah. It's a beautiful painting. But yeah. but um, this was a wonderful relationship. She played the extrovert, he the introvert, and partly this was theater. So why did this good man decide not to seek a second full term in uh, 1928? Other historians have emphasized he was tired you know, people, historians like to emphasize Coolidge's weakness because that's when you do what you do when you don't like someone's message or the quality of his achievement, what the direction it might go in. He was tired. His son had died. It was terrible. His son had died while he was in office. And we have a beautiful cartoon exhibit, which I hope you'll take a look at, of the life of Coolidge. And now we're making a video which shows people holding vigil outside the White House as Calvin Jr. died tragically, a boy who's, uh, who got a blister playing tennis that went septic in the period before antibiotics. I don't, however, after years of research, believe that Coolidge chose not to run, as he famously put it, because of sorrow or depression or anything psychological. Coolidge chose not to run. The minor reason was, he, he again, he's a politician. He didn't his second and a half terms don't go so well often. Um, but two, because he believed, as he wrote in his autobiography, that it's important to change presidents from time to time. Mm -hmm. We're not a dictatorship. It's important for Americans to believe and a safety for them, he wrote, for them to believe and understand that the president is not a great man. He's just one American serving the country. Therefore, he believed in shifting service. He didn't like people who changed the rules so they could stay in office. He admired Cincinnatus and George Washington, who made a similar choice. Go home, sit under your vine tree, right? And, <laughs> you know, and retire, return to the plow. A president should return to the people. 
cool it's said in this autobiography. I should mention we're republishing the autobiography. The family has authorized a of Calvin Coolidge has authorized a new edition, which will be available shortly from ISI Press. It's just fantastic because it has lots of pictures. Oh, I can't can't wait to can't wait to see that. Wonderful. And you've you've partially answered my next question. What what is Coolidge's legacy today? And and what do you do at the Coolidge Foundation to help promote and uh, preserve that legacy? Well, thank you. Alan and I worked together with President Bush 43 in Dallas. So um, we've been working on presidents for a long time. (laughs) Coolidge's legacy, I think, was understanding that America was special. And one of the best things we can do in America is be the best we can be because we're an important model for other nations. He was not an interventionist. And he signed a almost universally reviled pact, the Kellogg-Briand pact, which outlawed war. And uh, everyone laughs at it. Oh, how naive. But he understood that American, our best export is not weapons, but laws. We had great laws. We have a great tradition of the rule of law in the United States. And that's an important model for other nations. He respected other nations, but he was not an interventionist. You mentioned Japan in your question list. He had a real soft spot for the Japanese, and he was particularly appalled at the Japanese exclusion in an immigration law he signed because he knew that that exclusion, which was written by congressmen, would humiliate the Japanese, make them lose face and stir their ire, which it did. So he was sometimes a visionary, but not an interventionist. Mm. So, Amity, I know you're you're working on uh, getting that autobiography out of, of Calvin Coolidge. What is next for you in terms of writing other than that? Well, I would mention that we have a Coolidge scholarship like a Rhodes. Ah. It really is for undergraduates, though, and, and we hope People who are interested in Coolidge particularly will apply for it. It's a full ride to any college. Last year, we had over 3,000 candidates for four scholarships because it's so generous. But non-winners, the strongest among them, become Coolidge senators. And they come to Coolidge House in Washington and learn all about Calvin Coolidge, but also have a great time with one another. It's fun to be a Coolidge senator, and now we have hundreds of them. So we hope your listeners will think of that regarding the health of their children. I have a new book out on the Great Society, um, which involved some support from the Johnson Library in Austin. So I should mention that. And I'm very fortunate that book has has done quite well. It's about to come out in paperback. The summary is uh, the Great Society was not so great. It didn't achieve its goals. Um, uh, So I, I hope you take a look at that. It also has excellent pictures. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed it very much, Amity. I've read it, but I encourage our listeners to, for sure. Uh, always, always wonderful uh, product you put out. Wonderful books, Amity, and really appreciate you being part of American POTUS. So, Amity, we'd like to give our listeners a bit of a glimpse into the personal side of Calvin Coolidge with a few short but insightful questions. Can you help us out a little bit? Absolutely. So, past or present, who do you think his favorite president would be? Washington, okay. Reagan, maybe Eisenhower, who is Eisenhower, too, um, led by indirection. As you mentioned, technology was going crazy during the 20s, and along with that is the media lot of technology. Would you say he was a friend or foe of the newly technological media? The received idea about Coolidge is that he was retrograde in the 19th century. Actually, apparently, he was very good on the radio. We just don't have a lot yeah, of tapes of him to know that. It was said his voice 
New England, cut through the air like wire. <laughs> he was on the radio quite a bit. And he, there are volumes of press conferences he had. They were all off the record. That's why we don't know about them. So he was a friend of the media. He signed the radio law. He loved the radio because it, it, it spared his voice relative to giving belting out a speech. Mm -hmm. So what would you say would be the biggest do-over of his presidency? Well, the do-over I would do would be the tariff. He made an error there. Mm -hmm. He scared yeah. Cuba. I mean, we're telling Cuba we should love it, even as we double sugar tariffs. That's their main export, their lifeline, sugar, right? That would be the do-over I would do. I think the do-over he might do is the harsh tones around immigration early in the decade, maybe signing the very restrictive immigration law. As I say, he had no choice because he would have been overridden, but he was quite powerful about the slap in the face that law was to the Japanese. And what would you say would be his luckiest moment? Well, of course, his luckiest moment was that he became president, even though he became president because of a tragedy. President Harding died, but he might have just been vice president otherwise, and he was a good president. He reminded America who America was, and he gave America great prosperity through his restraint. Of course, they didn't have Secret Service code names back then, but if they did, what would his have been? Well, he did have a code name, and oh. it wasn't very nice. They called him the Little Fellow, because oh. he was not so tall. Oh, that's just not right. Eight or five, nine, you know, there's some fudging there. Um, his bodyguard, or one of them, Colonel Starling, referred to him mm -hmm. as the Little Fellow. I want to know, what were his personal guilty pleasures? Like, did he have a favorite food or favorite drink? He liked Lincoln, and he used federal money to buy some Lincoln paraphernalia, oh. unlike him. He okay. really liked Lincoln. Remember, Lincoln, he and Lincoln were both from humble backgrounds. Lincoln yeah. was born in Cabin. He was yeah. born behind the store. So he liked custard. Don't think he drank very much, though he wasn't, you know, drinking them was a political statement because you'd be violating mm -hmm. prohibition. He, he mm -hmm. certainly, when he was in Cuba, someone tried to put liquor in his paw <laughs> and he jumped away because he knew that photo would be the president breaking the law. You know, right. he was very wary. Don't think he drank much. He had weird medical habits. They put cocaine in your ear when you, uh, I think when you were seasick. I don't know what that meant. <laughs> what? I mean, he had some weird medical habits from the 19th century. Um, he really liked anything milky. He he clearly had cholesterol problems. They didn't have the drugs we have. Didn't like mutton, but he did like, as I say, he did like custard and, and cuts of meat. I think he probably had too much mutton as a child. That is the grown-up tough sheep rather than the tender lamb. His best habit was discipline. He said it's better not to seek the limelight, but to burn the midnight oil. The way to get a, a promotion is to do the job so well they ask you for the next job, not to market yourself. He was suspicious of marketing. So his best habit was getting work done. He was a mm -hmm. real workhorse. Speaking of that, so my final question, how did he relax? What did he do for fun? Well, this question was asked of Kuz in the time, and he said, what is your hobby? My hobby is running for office. <laughs> because he went from, uh, you know, city solicitor, town representative, all the way up to state rep, state senator, lieutenant governor, governor of an important state, Massachusetts, and more important, vice president, president. That was his life. He didn't have much adulthood that wasn't in office. He was an attorney, but so his hobby was running for office. He liked to read a lot. It was uh, there's a new book out by Craig Furman mm -hmm. that praises him as a writer. He was a brilliant writer. He wrote in the homiletic fashion, like like a church sermon, short and clear. So I, I would say his proclivity, his habit too, was working on writing. 
and he loved to write and also was tortured by it because he wanted to do a good job. His passion. I, I should mention, Amity, Craig Furman's going to be a guest on a future American POTUS. We're excited to have him on here. And before we uh, let you go, can you tell us where people can learn more about the Coolidge Foundation? Absolutely. CoolidgeFoundation.org or Coolidge Scholars. And very, you know, have a look at my books, but also have a look at the new videos that are going to come out in coming weeks. One is about Coolidge's faith. And please have a look also at his speeches in our virtual library, which we've been using COVID time to build out because we have so many speeches on our website at the Coolidge Foundation that weren't up before. And if you feel like it, you can comment on one of the speeches. We have a large Coolidge community, Friends of Coolidge. We have a debate program for secondary school students. Please send your child. That's wonderful. Well, Amity, thank you so much for joining us on American POTUS. Really enjoyed the conversation. Great to uh, great to hear your voice again and really appreciate all you're doing up there. Oh, thank you, and thank I you, hope Amity. to catch up with you more. The American POTUS Podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents. Graphic design by the Thought Bureau. An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com or stop by our social pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Calvin Coolidge, quote, Patriotism is easy to understand in America. It means looking out for yourself by looking out for your country.